Welcome to the Contending for the Word podcast, a podcast devoted to helping inform, educate, equip, and warn people about false teachers, false movements, and unbiblical philosophies. Now join our host for today's episode and enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Contending for the Word podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm today's host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about transgenderism. This is a, a topic that we're going to keep coming back to because it's it's one that's in the news. In fact, the Daily Wire recently reported on October 19, 2023, uh, the title of the article is Maxim Names Biological Male to Hottest 100 Women's List. Now, Maxim Magazine named a biological male and a former Australian rules football player Daniel Laidley to its hottest 100 woman list in Australia for 2023 with a trans-identifying man landing in the number two spot. Now, Laidley, he played and coached in the Australian Football League, also known as the AFL, and uh, he joins actress uh, Margaret Robbie on the hot list. This issue is uh, a big one out in the culture today. Megan Kelly on X, also known as, uh, formerly known as Twitter, stated uh, in response to this article, we ran out of women. Uh, Riley Gaines, who's very outspoken, how do we get to the point where companies and institutions and publications can do this with no fear of backlash, uh, she says. And on and on we go. And we're seeing this as an issue in, in our culture today on this show. We're not only going to talk about false ideologies and philosophies and theology that are happening in the church, but we're also going to talk about them out in the culture. And you know what? Maybe you're not aware of this, but this issue is coming into our homes. It's invading our homes through our government. It's invading our schools. Kids are being actively taught this particular view uh, in our public schools all over the, the United States. And so we have to be willing to have this kind of confrontation, uh, this kind of conversation, and confront this ideology with the Word of God. And so we're not only going to talk about uh, more about transgenderism today, but but at the end I'm also going to talk about biblical beauty, because really the the opposite of what uh, transgenderism is offering in this particular story is offering with its 100 hot list is is that there is a definition of beauty it's all about how i physically look and not only god is also concerned not only with that we train ourselves for godliness uh, as paul says to timothy in first timothy 4 but also that we're cultivating the means of grace uh the reading and the studying of god's word prayer uh, local church attendance where we're sitting under qualified uh, biblically male pastors and more. But we're going to get to that at the end. But uh, we need to talk about not only about the fact of this story, but also the fact that we've seen uh, this issue in our culture. In uh, February 22nd, 2016, the Charlotte City Council passed uh, by 7-4 vote ordinance 7056, that's in North Carolina, uh, 
The stated purpose of this was to prohibit discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity in public accommodations, including bathrooms. We've seen this issue now come to roost all over our country. Now, this provoked a vigorous debate because the ordinance would have given a biological male who claims to have a female gender identity the legal right to use a public bathroom designated for women and contrawise for a biological female who claims to be a male. The following month, the North Carolina Senate and House of Representatives passed the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, popularly known as House Bill HB2. This bill legislated that in a government buildings, people may only use bathrooms that correspond to the sex on their birth certificates. Well, this bill ignited a firestorm all over the country. It was widely criticized for discriminating against transgender people and violating their civil rights. Some opponents characterized it as the most anti-LGBTQ legislation in the United States to date. Prominent celebrities, business people, sports associations, they all vowed to cancel events, withdraw investment from North Carolina because of this very bill. The U.S. Department of Justice announced that it would be suing the North Carolina governor at the time, Pat McRoy, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, and the University of North Carolina on the grounds uh, that HB2 violates uh, Title uh, II of the Civil Rights Act, Title IX of the Education Amendment of the 1972, and the Violence Against Women Act. Now, the second story comes courtesy of the New York Times, America's supposed paper of record. This story comes from September 16, 2016. And the newspaper published an article in its Modern Love series with the title from He to She in First Grade. And so the article begins, When our son turned six, my husband and I brought him a puppet theater and a chest of dress-up clothes because he liked to put on plays. We filled the chest with 20 items from Goodwill, mostly grown-up attire, ties, button-down shirts, a gray pageboy cap, and a suit vest. But we didn't want his or his castmates' creative output to be curtailed by a lack of custom choices. And so we also included high heels, a pink straw hat, a dazzling fairy uh, skirt, and a sparkly green halter dress. It was th- uh, he was thrilled to be presented with these presents. He put on the sparkly green dress right away, and in a sense, he never took it off. The author recounted how her son continued to wear dresses and other girls' clothing right up until the day he started school. His mother and father discussed with him whether he wanted to wear those clothes to school, knowing that he would probably be ridiculed and bullied, but he insisted that he wanted to do it, and that's exactly what he did. And at the end of the first week of school, the boy was quite upset at bedtime. And so his mother told him that uh, he could go back to wearing boys' clothes if he wanted to. Her son replied, no, Mama, I already decided about that, the story goes. I never think about that anymore. And so the author concluded, he'd already decided he didn't think about that anymore, and he, she never looked back. Uh, she grew on her hair. Uh, She stopped telling people that she was a boy in a skirt and started being a girl in a skirt instead. And we, as a family, decided to be open and honest about it, too, celebrating her story instead of hiding it. Well, two years later, our daughter still sometimes wears the green dress for dress up and to put on plays uh, as we imagine her doing in the first place. 
And now that she can be who she is on the inside and on the outside on weekdays as well as on the weekends, at home and everywhere else, the sparkly green dress has once again become just a costume. And the third story comes from a 2008 article in the Christian Research Journal by author Joe Dallas. He says that Kim was the most handsome client ever to step into my office. As a pastoral counselor, I work with men wanting to overcome sexual sins. And many who, at first impression, present themselves as self-absorbed, male model types, so an attractive man asking for help wasn't unusual. But tall, muscular, and square-jawed Kim immediately stood in part. Since this is your first appointment, I said while Kim completed an intake form, let's talk about the problem that brought you here. My new counselee signed the form, fixed a steady gaze on me, and dropped the bomb. My problem is my chromosomes. I was born female. Uh, He says, I was astonished, and after two decades of counseling porn addicts and homosexuals, prostitutes, and the occasional sex offender, I don't shock easily. I I lived most of my life as a man, she continued, and it's worked. I finally had sex change surgery three years ago, and I've been living with a woman since then. But two weeks ago, I got saved at a harvest crusade. I'm a new Christian, so now what, she says. Now, clearly, these three stories, they all share a common theme. The rise of transgenders, both as a social phenomenon and as a cultural movement that we've continued to see progress since these stories came out. But these stories, they present very different perspectives on that one common theme, and they invite three different kinds of responses from Christians. The first story is primarily political in nature. The second story is more broadly cultural, and it raises issues about parenting. And the third highlights the pastoral challenges presented by transgenderism. And together, what they do is they underscore what a complex and even challenging cluster of issues we find before us as Christians. Now, why is transgenderism an issue all of a sudden? Where did it come from? And in many respects, this isn't a new issue. The first documented male-to-female sex reassignment surgery took place in 1930. Cases of gender confusion, the perception that one's gender doesn't align with one's biological sex, go back even further in history. The practice of transvetism traces back to at least the time of Moses. What, what's new at this point in human history is the mainstreaming, the normalization That is, the norming of it, the the making of it to be culturally acceptable of transgenderism, driven not only by the power of popular culture, the media, Hollywood, and more, but increasingly with the force of the government as well. Evidently, this is a subject that Christians cannot ignore, and we must not ignore, and we must not invade. We must speak out about it, and we need to evaluate and respond to the issue, or rather, the issues very clearly. And what's more, we need to do so in a consistently Christian fashion. So here today, we're going to talk about an assessment of transgenderism from a biblical perspective. And we're going to talk about some definitions and distinctions before reviewing some basic facts about transgenderism that are going to set the stage for us talking further about it. And after that, I'm going to explain the role that worldviews play in shaping people's views on transgenderism. And we're going to use John Frame's analytical scheme called the Tri-Perspectival Assessment, which I'll explain when we get there. And then I'm going to offer some remarks on a Christian response to the challenges presented by transgenderism. And then I'm going to talk, as we end our time together, about biblical beauty and how that counters transgenderism. Now, 
Clear definitions are absolutely essential for any responsible discussion on any controversial topic. But we also need to note that definitions are never neutral. They inevitably frame the issues in a particular way and sometimes in a prejudicial way that nudges us into conceding questionable assumptions or making value judgments. For example, if I were to define Presbyterian as that form of Protestant Christianity which seeks to model its ecclesiology and sacramentology on the Bible, well, you know what? Baptists would come back and they would take issue with that definition. I'm a Baptist, so I would take issue with that, and rightly so, because a prior theological evaluation has been built into the definition. Now, that caveat aside— there, here are some definition of key terms that are consistent with a biblical perspective, but also avoid uh, prejudging the issue by begging the question or rigging the deck when it comes to a Christian assessment. Ontological sex. A human person, basic sexual identity is either male or female. And so when you are invited to complete a form by checking one of these two boxes, male or female, you are being asked an excess an in essence, to indicate your ontological sex. Biological sex, male or female, according to chromosome, XX or XY, and physiology, both internal and external, meaning your genitalia and your reproductive organs. Throughout human history, biological sex has been the primary indicator of ontological sex. That's to say, we identify a person as a male or a female based on his or her physiology. And nevertheless, it's important to distinguish the concepts of ontological sex and biological sex for the simple reason that we are more than biological organisms. There's more to us than our physiology, gender. The physiology, the social, the cultural manifestations of maleness and femaleness. Now, this is a, a much broader category than biological sex. Our notion of motherhood goes beyond the merely the biological notion of being a female uh, progenitor. Now, if it includes other non-biological features such as maternal attitudes and social rules, some aspects of gender may be culturally relative. That is, wearing makeup is considered feminine in many but not all cultures, while other aspects are transcultural, military leadership as a characteristically masculine trait. Gender identity, how one perceives and experiences oneself as a male or female. This is a highly loaded term in contemporary discussions. We need to be very careful about how we define and deploy it. Arguably, the term was coined with the specific purpose of advancing an ideological identity, i.e. sexual orientation, and the use of the word identity is especially pragmatic since it suggests that one's core identity as a human person is defined in terms of one's gender. All concerns aside, the basic idea behind the term gender identity can be grasped by posing, posing this question. Do you feel male or female? Well, your gender identity is your answer to that question. Whether or not we accept the terminology, it seems that this is a question most people are able to answer in a most meaningful way, regardless of their views on transgenderism. Indeed, gender dysphoria and transgenderism wouldn't even exist as topics of discussion were it not for the fact that some people answer that question in ways other than their biology would indicate. And so with these four definitions in place, we're now in a position to define three further terms, gender dysphoria, transgender, and transsexual. Gender dysphoria. 
The typical distressing experience of incongruence between one's biological sex and one's gender identity. In other words, a man who feels that he is a woman or a woman who feels that she is a man has gender dysphoria. Moreover, this internal sense of incongruence can vary widely. There can be mild, moderate, and even severe cases of gender dysphoria. Transgender, that's, this is a broad umbrella term. It's used to describe a person who experiences or even expresses a gender identity other than his or her biological sex. Transgender, transsexual, is a person who is living as a member of the opposite sex with respect to his or her biological sex. Such a person may or may not have pursued so-called sex change or sex reassignment treatment typically involving hormone therapy and plastic surgery. So let's talk about some facts, which a Christian assessment of transgenderism ought to take into account. Now, as I said, just as there's no neutral definitions, there's also no neutral facts. All factual claims have been subjected to some degree of interpretation. All facts have presuppositions. And so what I'm describing here is just the widely agreed upon set of facts about these issues. First, According to one estimate, about 0.6 of American adults identify with a transgender other than their biological sex. That is, 6 in 1,000. These people would be categorized as transgender according to the definition above. Second, the number of adults clinically diagnosed with gender dysphoria is remarkably lower because the criteria for that diagnosis is much stricter. And according to one estimate, fewer than 1 in 10,000 adult males and fewer than 1 in 30,000 adult females suffer from trans, trans, suffer from gender dysphoria. Excuse me. Now, estimates vary widely, partly because the criteria for diagnosis are not consistently understood and even applied. Third, among prepubescent children who experience gender confusion, the majority discover that it decreases over time as they enter and even pass through adolescence. And nevertheless, a significant proportion of them go on to identify as either homosexual or bisexual in adulthood. For the causes of gender dysphoria are basically unknown. So as one might expect, there is a vigorous debate over whether the condition is primarily a matter of nature or nurture, but there is nothing close to scientific consensus on the matter. It remains an open question. And so consequently, there is an equally vigorous debate over how, over how gender dysphoria ought to be treated. Fit. People who identify as transgender are at a significantly higher risk of mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. That is an established statistical fact, although the explanation of that fact is still debated. Furthermore, suicide rates among transgender people are significantly higher for the U.S. population in general. Six, shifting focus to the cultural and even the political spheres, here's another fact. There is a growing movement within our culture and within the government to include transgender rights under the umbrella of civil rights, alongside racial equality and sexual equality. One prominent illustration comes from a briefing report by the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights published in September 2016. I quote here from the letter of transmittal contained within the report. Emphasis is added here. The, the United States Commission of Civil Rights Commission is pleased to transmit our briefing report. The peaceful coexistence reconciling, reconciling non-discrimination principles with civil liberties. And the report examined the balance struck by the federal courts first, more, first, 
foremost among them the U.S. Supreme Court in adjudicating claims of religious exemptions from otherwise applicable non-discrimination law. Now, the commission heard testimony from experts and scholars in the field, and a majority of the commission made findings and even recommendations. So some of those findings were the following. First, civil right protections ensuring non-discrimination as embodied in the Constitution, laws, and policies are of preeminent importance in American jurisprudence. Excuse me for my poor pronunciation. Second, Religious exemptions to the protections of civil rights based on classifications such as race, color, national origin, sex, disability status, sexual orientation, and gender identity when they are permissible significantly infringe upon these civil rights. The point here is that it is a significant political movement pushing for so-called transgender rights, and these rights are understood to conflict at points with religious freedom and exemptions to protect the consciences of religious believers. This is openly acknowledged on both sides of the debate. So now let's talk about worldviews. We need to ask the question, how do you think about transgenderism will depend largely on your understanding of humanity. That is your anthropology. That is your view of human nature, what we are and what we're supposed to be as human beings made in the image of God. And furthermore, your anthropology will depend in turn upon your broader worldview. That is your view of God, ultimate reality, truth, meaning, value, and on and on. And so having discussed at length the relationship between anthropology and worldview already, let's apply that broader framework to the specific issue of transgenderism. Let's consider here briefly how worldviews have shaped thinking about this issue among non-Christians and even Christians alike. And so we can start with the mainstream narrative of transgenderism. And the narrative we find represented in most mainstream outlets and popular movies and TV shows and by progressive politicians and celebrities is what we're talking about here. In the past, people took for granted that gender and sexuality were simple matters. You were either born a man or a woman, and that was the end of it. But now we know better. We understand that gender and sexuality are more complex than previous generations understood. There's a difference between biological sex or birth sex and gender identity. And some people have a gender identity other than their biological sex. And thus we have cases of a, of a man born in a woman's body and a woman born in a man's body. In fact, gender identity is itself complex. It's a continuum rather than a binary. Some people are just more male than female and on and on. Indeed, some people are neither male nor female. They just don't identify either gender. And so we need new categories such as gender queer and gender fluid. And among all of this complexity and fluidity, there's one central axiom. Gender identity reflects a person's true identity, meaning that it represents who they really are. And so they should be able to express that gender identity as they see fit without fear of judgment or disapproval or discrimination. That's a basic human right for a person to live according to their gender identity. This means that gender identity must trump everything else, biological sex, physiology, birth certificate, and on and on. And if a person is unhappy then with their biological sex, their physiology, they have the right to pursue whatever means are available to correct it. And what's more, everyone else must respect it and even support their right to do so. 
The most recent chapter in the narrative pertains to parenting. Parents now need to be aware that they might have a transgender child. We've seen this in the news. Even in, even in the state of California wanting to push for this kind of view on, on uh, uh, not having the parents... Uh, regulate or raise their children, but having the government tell the state government in California to to tell the parents what they're going to do with their child and even threaten to take them away if they don't support transgenderism. And those who have an obligation to affirm and accommodate their child's identity, such as a mainstream narrative. And we can even identify some key themes that drive this narrative. Here's our some of them. Gender identity, understood as a core identity to finding who I am. Second, sexual diversity and liberty. Civil rights, the LGBTQ movement, being understood as the latest front. Tolerance and non-discrimination. Science and technology, the main hope for solutions to human problems. Now, the mainstream narrative on transgenderism is just one among many interrelated cultural narratives that are being pushed today. We need to recognize, however, that the cultural narratives aren't self-sustaining or even free-floating. They need to be situated within a worldview that makes them meaningful, intelligible, even plausible. And simplifying somewhat, we can even identify two secular worldviews that have shaped and even support even support the mainstream narrative that I'm discussing here. And the first is naturalism. Naturalism is a view that nature is all there is, where nature is basically understood as whatever can be studied scientifically. And so for the naturalists, the, the natural universe, the physical cosmos, is the only reality that exists. Or at least the only reality that matters. And so according to naturalism, everything has ultimately a scientific explanation, and that must include human nature and human experience. And so according to the standard origin story of naturalism, we are the product of undirected naturalistic evolutionary process. We're highly evolved animals in this view with some unique abilities. And on this view, there is no transcendent purpose or even meaning to human life. If there is any meaning to human life, it is one that we ourselves create for ourselves. Now, it's no secret that naturalism has a hard time accounting for objective moral laws. On what basis can a naturalist argue that some human behaviors are objectively morally right while others are objectively morally wrong? And if naturalism were true, why would there be laws of morality that stand over us? How could there be any laws? And in the absence of any uh, better moral theories, naturalists will commonly adopt some version of utilitarianism, according to which morality is defined in terms of whatever maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain, that is, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, as Jeremy Bentley famously expressed it. And so how then would a naturalist view transgenderism? Well, a naturalist will typically want to say that gender identity is a physiological phenomenon rooted in the physical brain. For the naturalist then, all human experiences reduce to brain science. And so there have been various scientific studies seeking to, to demonstrate some correlation between gender identity and brain structure or even brain chemistry. And furthermore, a naturalist will be inclined to say that transgenderism is just one facet of a biological diversity of natural variation within a species. There's no right or no wrong about it. Transgenderism isn't a disorder or dysfunction because on the naturalist view, there's simply no right or wrong way to understand what a human being is. What we are is a naturalistic evolutionary process has made us. That's the end of the story. 
And if anything can be said to be wrong, it's that some people are unhappy with their bodies, according to this view. They have a male body and a female brain, or vice versa, and that incongruity causes them pain. It causes them emotional suffering. And so if they're going to be happy, one or the other, the body or the brain need to be changed. And so which must change? Well, for the naturalist, it's the body that will have to change for two basic reasons. First, it's generally easier and safer to modify the body than to tinker with the brain. Secondly, our personal identity is more closely associated with our brain because the brain is the seat of consciousness and thus self-consciousness. And so from the naturalist perspective, it makes sense for a transgender person to pursue sex assignment treatment. Now, we're going to talk about and assess that idea later, but... We're going to move on and talk about postmodernism now. Postmodernism, to simplify matters to an almost criminal extent, can be characterized as a view that there are no absolute norms and there is no objective reality. According to postmodernism, reality isn't something objective out there to be discovered. It just isn't something that exists independently of our thoughts and our language. Reality is something we can create or even construct by the way we think and speak about our subjective experiences. That means that truth is always relative. It's relativized either to the individual subject or to the groups of subjects, communities, or societies. So the postmodernists will have quite a different take on transgenderism than that of the naturalists. For the postmodernists, gender is a fluid social construction that isn't anchored to any biological categories. Uh, it isn't a category imposed on us by nature either. Rather, it's a category we invented and which we impose on ourselves. And so then gender identity isn't rooted in brain physiology as a naturalist holds, but is entirely a matter of personal preference and self-perceptions. That's what we're seeing with the personal pronoun movement. Now, put simply, what you are is what you perceive yourself to be. In fact, more strongly, what you are is what you conceive yourself to be. And for self-conception is more powerful than mere perception. And on this radical view, you have the freedom and the right to define yourself, indeed, to redefine yourself without limit. And if your physical appearance doesn't currently align with your self-defined identity, well, then your physical appearance needs to get in line. And so we have before us two secular worldviews, which in quite different ways, they provide a broader framework for the mainstream narrative on transgenderism. The greater irony of all of this is that these two worldviews aren't consistent with each other. They make fundamentally incompatible claims. On the naturalist view, gender identity is a kind of biological fact. It's an objective truth about a human being uh, that can be scientifically explained and justified. On the postmodernist view, gender isn't a biological fact, but rather a social construction. It's something we created rather than something nature gave us. Gender identity, to adapt a phrase, is created, not begotten. And despite these fundamental disagreements, we find that these two worldviews frequently get mixed up together whenever the mainstream narrative on transgenderism is defended. What's more, we should recognize that these two worldviews, naturalism and even postmodernism, do have one tenet in common, an axiomatic commitment to human autonomy. Both proceed from an absolute denial of any transcendent on divine norms. And what then is the overarching lesson to draw from the, all of this? Simply this, when we approach the issue of transgenderism, we need to be aware of how the issues and the overarching narrative has been supported and shaped by secular worldviews that are committed to human autonomy. 
We must not look at the issue through those warped lenses. Rather, we must view the issue through the lens of a Christian worldview, a worldview that represents a biblical perspective on God, on creation, on revelation, on human nature, on moral laws, the fallenness of this world, and what God has done and is doing to redeem this fallen world. And so let us turn now to what I trust is a distinctively and even faithful Christian assessment of transgenderism, both as a condition, that means gender dysphoria and its treatment, and as a cultural movement. As a guiding uh, assessment for this, I, I'm going to make use of John's frame tri-perspectival approach, which is developed in greater detail in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life. Frame contends that any Christian any issue in Christian ethics can be considered from three perspectives, the normative, the situational, and the existential. So let's consider this issue of transgenderism through, the, through those three portals. The normative perspective invites us to ask the question, what are the norms or standards that apply here? Well, perhaps the first and the most general thing to say is that God himself is our ultimate norm. God himself is a final standard of what is true, good, and beautiful. And what that entails is an utter repudiation of the kind of human autonomy reflected in the two worldviews outlined above. God is the author of creation. He defines his creation. God is the creator of humankind. He defines what it means to be a human. We simply do not get to define what we are or who we are. In matters of Christian ethics, God's norms are expressed to us primarily in his laws. God's laws are what we might call our proximate norms. In the first place, we have what Reformed theologians call the creation ordinances, that is, moral laws grounded in the order and the design of creation. The most immediate relevant creation ordinances is that of human sexuality and relationships. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so it can hardly be clearer from the creation account that God did not intend sexuality and even gender to be fluid and expressed on a continuum. Indeed, the assumption throughout the Bible is that there are two sexes, male and female, and the primary determiner of a person's sex is physiology. We are embodied beings and our sexuality is expressed through our bodies. And so the creation account thus establishes some fundamental norms of human sexuality. Second, we have the Ten Commandments, which a Reformed tradition has consistently taken as a summary of God's moral law. A number of these commandments are directly relevant to transgenderism. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Once again, we find here an implicit repudiation of human autonomy, which is a form of idolatry, treating the creature as though it were the creator. We should recognize that the LGBTQ movement represents a form of idolatry, treating human sexual experience as greater authority than the word of God. Whatever our response is to transgenderism, gender dysphoria, and on and on, it must be a response that seeks to interpret human experience in light of God's word rather than the reverse. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Well, this commandment presupposes parental authority and leadership. It stands firmly against the idea that a child should be set, should set the agenda regarding his or her gender identity. And the commandment also implies parental oversight and even care for the children, and thus the protection of children with a proper family structure. 
And this clearly has major implications for transgender parents, especially the cases of transgender men who conceive and give birth, cases which we should expect to increase in, in the number as transgenderism becomes even more mainstream. And we're seeing that. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Well, this commandment enjoys the preservation and even the protection of human life. It has implication, among other things, sex reassignment treatments, many of which carry significant health risks. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment presupposes the biblical understanding of marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman, which in turn presupposes the basic binary of sexual differentiation, sexual differentiation established in Genesis 1 and 2. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and woman and of our own and of our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. And this has obvious implications for sex reassignment treatments. If biological sex is indeed the primary indicator of ontological sex, as we discussed previously, then such treatments are a form of deception, are elaborate charade, in other words, in which people attempt to present themselves falsely as members of the opposite sex. So we can see then that from a normative perspective, the Bible has much to say about how we should understand and even evaluate these issues. Second, the situational perspective invites us to ask, how does our situation bear on the issue? Well, our situation typically indicate, includes our environment, facts about nature, our cultural circumstances, and so on and so forth. Ethically relevant information about our situation can come not only from the Bible, but also from sources outside of Scripture that has responsible scientific research. And so a great deal could be said about transgenderism from the situational perspective. But we must be very selective here. And perhaps the most fundamental thing to say about our situation is that we live in a fallen world. The human race is a fallen race. We are sinful people and we sin morally, physically, emotionally, and even psychologically. Furthermore, the natural world in general is under a curse. And one crucial implication is that in a fallen world, we need to draw a distinction between what is natural and what is normal. That something that occurs naturally does not imply that it is right or even good. And this stands in direct contradiction to the born this way narrative promoted by any many LGBTQ campaigners. This basic fact about the world also means that human experience must not be treated as normative. Our experiences, our feelings, our perceptions are all corrupted by sin and thus they always need to be interpreted and critically evaluated in the light of God's word alone. The situational perspective also encourages us to incorporate relevant scientific information into our assessment, considering the following. The causes of gender dysphoria are presently unknown, although the evidence indicates that it is genuinely physiological condition and that it can vary in degree, and that it's typically something people find themselves with rather than something chosen or even self-imposed. The majority of children's uh, childhood cases of gender dysphoria resolve naturally over time. While a number of studies have been conducted, there is no solid scientific evidence that sex reassignment surgery is an effective solution to gender dysphoria. Sex reassignment surgery is a major undertaking and has significant health risks associated with it. 
It is far beyond the being risk-free or even harm-free. We must not overlook the central fact that many advocates of such a treatment want us to overlook. It involves a surgical alteration of an otherwise healthy human body. It doesn't correct a physical deformity, but rather deforms what is otherwise physically correct. From a scientific perspective, it is impossible to change one's biological sex, a fact understood in the most excruciating way by cases of transgender men becoming uh, pregnant. And one last point to note under the situational perspective, that something, uh, that something is scientifically possible doesn't mean it's ethically permissible. That ought to be too obvious to state, but unfortunately we're facing a more major problem today in, in so much as public ethics and public policy, rather than constraining scientific research and technological developments, are being dragged along with this false narrative. Now let's consider the existential perspective. The existential perspective in Christian ethics places a spotlight on the individual person involved in moral decisions and action, that person's character, motives, and emotions, experiences, and even internal faculties. The existential perspective, it focuses on what the Bible calls the heart, the inner core from which all thoughts, all words, and all actions proceed. And as with the other two perspective, numerous points can be said and discussed under this heading, but we're only going to focus on two. And first, we must acknowledge that the human heart in its natural state is fallen and corrupt. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it, the Bible says. All of us ought, therefore, to be very skeptical about what our hearts are telling us about who we are, what is right, how we should find fulfillment. Spurgeon hit the nail on the head when he quipped, the most difficult book you will ever read is your own heart. We ought to have a natural distrust for our self-perception. This obviously has implications for how we think about gender identity and thus about how we evaluate gender dysphoria. As second, the existential perspective draws our attention to issues of self-identity. What defines us? What makes us who we are? And in what should we locate our identity? Well, we can see two closely related errors in the transgender movement. The idea that we should locate our identity in our gender or sexuality. And second, the idea and the deeper error that we are ourselves define our identity. Both are expressions of autonomy and idolatry. And the biblical view is that God defines us and we find our identity in him. More specifically, if we're Christians, if we're united to Christ by faith in his name, our identity is in Christ. So tying together the threads of the tri-perspectival analysis that we've considered today, we can say this. Gender dysphoria is a real condition and it is best understood as a psychological disorder or dysfunction, perhaps more deeply as a spiritual disorder. Sex reassignment treatment is not the way to address gender dysphoria. If anything, it ex exacerbates the, the root problem rather than alleviating it. Third, the transgender movement is merely the latest phase of a moral and cultural revelation which is grounded in the secular worldview committed to human autonomy and thus to the wholesale repudiation of the God of the Bible. While we must hold fast to the biblical truth that every human being is made in the image of God and precious in the sight of God, we still must also affirm that every human being, every last one of us, is fallen in sin and sexually enslaved without Christ. Gender dysphoria and other forms of gender confusion are but one mainstreaming of that sexual sin and sexual enslavement. And while the biblical worldview provides the only solid foundation for human rights, we must reject 
the idea that those human rights include what are now called transgender rights, the right to live in accordance with one's gender identity and the right to have that gender identity affirmed by others. So how should we as Christians respond to all this? I'm going to make some brief remarks here on the Christian response to transgenderism before going further. And I say responses rather than response because the various challenges posed by transgenderism invite different kinds of responses. We should distinguish, for example, between a cultural response to the transgender movement, a pastoral response to individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria or self-identify as transgender. Recall the three stories I mentioned at the outset. What each one calls for a different kind of response for Christians, even though each response will be directed by shared principles grounded in a Christian worldview. And it's important to avoid letting one kind of response drive the other kinds. In the current political climate, there is a particular danger of allowing the cultural wars to shape our pastoral response. So here's some thoughts on the two kinds of responses to distinguish above, recognizing that there needs to be more that needs to be said, and we will on this show be talking about that as we go along. It's imperative that Christians, and especially pastors, adopt a prophetic stance, meaning that they stand on the Word of God in the face of these challenges that God designed for human sexuality. We need to speak clearly and consistently about what Scripture teaches and what the Bible considers normal behavior. The title of Dr. Albert Muller's a book has it right. We cannot be silent. This means we need to be ready and willing to engage in public debate and dialogue. We also need to present a compelling counter narrative. If we fail to do that, the mainstream narrative will win by default. Theirs will be seen as the only plausible position to take. And there are good reasons why there needs to be a strong cultural response from the church. First, there is our responsibility as Christians to promote the public good especially when it comes to promoting and protecting children from damaging parental practices and destructive ideologies. Like the Jewish exiles, we should seek the welfare of the cities and the towns and the villages in which God has placed us. Second, there is the need to preserve religious freedom. Above all, the freedom to preach scripture and proclaim the gospel, which is increasingly threatened by the demand for LGBTQ rights, a demand that invariably translates into the suppression of those who continue to stand firm on biblical norms. Now, we're not yet at the end of the road here, or perhaps the end of the rope, if you will, in this cultural battlefield. There's more to come, and it's going to be even more shocking to us as as Christians. But just consider, for example, what the category of gender fluid rejecting the binary of male and female implies with respect to the kind of reconstructive surgery that will be demanded in the future. Now, let's consider a pastoral response. Pastor responses will be uh, multifaceted as the pastoral cases that give rise to them. Some pastors are going to have to deal with some very messy and heartbreaking situations in the wake of the transgender revolution. They're going to require the wisdom of Solomon to disentangle. We can, however, broadly outline two categories to that response. First, to those who suffer from gender dysphoria and gender confusion in general. We need to cultivate in our churches the kind of Christian communities where people can share their struggle and even their confusion without fear of being rejected or ostracized. We must openly acknowledge that we are all sinful people. The challenge for the church is to walk the tightrope between, on the one hand, modeling healthy gender norms between that is exemplified between a man and a woman, and on the other hand, not alienating people who struggle to align with those norms. It's also important for us to distinguish between universal and even cultural norms, uh, gender norms. Now, we should, let me start over there. 
It's also important for us to distinguish between universal and cultural gender norms. We shouldn't uncritically assume that what is regarded as normal for a man or a woman in our own culture signifies something essential to manhood and womanhood, lest we find ourselves making biblically unwarranted judgments about how people present themselves. And concerning treatments for gender dysphoria, whatever we've recommend, and, and there are various kinds of treatments available, we should be consistent with our view that ontological sex rather than gender identity is normative for a person. That rules out attempts to change a person's physiology to align with their psychology. The change should be in the opposite direction. Second, to those who are, have actively pursued a transgender lifestyle. These present the most challenging scenarios, especially when irreversible surgical procedures have been utilized. And the first line of response should be to call for confession and repentance. In fact, from a gospel perspective, we might say that's the only essential response. But beyond that, our general counsel should be to correct or even reverse any steps that have been taken in the wrong direction, whether hormone treatment or reconstructive surgery, to the extent that it is possible without causing further harm. While transgenderism undoubtedly presents new and even vexing challenges for Christian pastors and counselors, the governing principles for dealing with such scenarios have already been recognized and applied to other kinds of situation and what proves impossible to undo what has been done without causing further harm and suffering to the people entangled in those situations. In any event, we may take encouragement from the fact that the transgender revolution did not take God by surprise. He foresaw it even as he fashioned the first man and the first woman. And thus we can be confident that God's word will be as sure and even a sufficient guide as we navigate these stormy seas that our Heavenly Father will grant wisdom and even comfort to those who seek his face in humility and faith and that the atoning work of Christ is sufficient to provide uh, cleansing and to restore those called to be conformed to the image of Christ. A casual glance at the magazine rack in the local a supermarket is an easy way to be reminded of the preoccupation of our society with a woman's physical appearance. Provocatively dressed, cover models stand surrounded by captions advertising articles on achieving the look to instantly attract, you know, that certain someone. We've seen that with, you know, this Daily Wire article uh, that we started with today. We're seeing that all over the place on the Internet and more. So in addition to their covers and Instagram pictures and on and on, the context inside many of these magazines and pictures, they promote the ungodly and even the self-destructive idea that physical, that flawless physical beauty rather than the development of a good character is the key to success. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our physical appearance because the Bible also says that we're to train ourselves for, for godliness that, and that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're not saying that we don't need to take care of the temple that God gave us, the body that he gave us. That's not what I'm saying. But what God cares about primarily, principally, is the inner beauty of the heart. Unfortunately, uh, many of these ideas are also alive and well in the church today as we're talking about today. One can look at the covers of contemporary Christian music albums and even wonder if the standards of the industry are really, in reality, so different from those of the secular culture. It's also easy to find immodest clothing on display in many of our churches. In, in 1 Peter 3, 3-4, Peter calls a woman of the church to stand firm in the faith by refusing uh, to submit to the standards of beauty set by the secular culture. 
And so he's teaching these women in his audience to remember the beauty that is precious in the sight of God. Naming the the beauty of character reflected in a gentle and a quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Faithful women have always known that true beauty, lasting beauty, is found ultimately not in physical appearance, but in the display of a godly character that produces good works and that fears God himself as we see in 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6. And in these verses, Peter is not condemning any uh, uh, all wearing of jewelry or a concern with outward appearance. If he were, then he, you would have to read verse 3 of 1 Peter 3, 3, as forbidding the wearing of any clothing at all. What Peter is condemning is an overt concern with physical appearance that reflects the vanity and the ungodliness of the surrounding culture. A person's dress is not indifferent, rather it illustrates the concern of the heart. And John Calvin reminds us that they who object and say that to clothe oneself with this or that manner is an indifferent thing in which all are free to do as they please may be easily com- confuted for a- an excessive elegance and superfluous display. In short, all in excess arise from the corrupted mind. And so what First Peter is doing for us, it's giving us a message for men and women. Unlike the surrounding culture, we are not to be vainly concerned with physical attractiveness. That's, that's a concern raised by Maxim with their, with their list. It's, it's the celebration of the human body, which really comes down to us, by the way, from the Greco-Roman civilization. All one has to do is look at their artwork, look at, look at their sculpture, and you see the obsession uh, at the level of worship. They worshiped the human body. They worshiped what was created, not the Lord who made the body, who is the creator, the one who sustains our very life and gives us breath, who knows our thoughts, and he, he longs for us to come to Christ. Instead, what the Greco-Roman, the Greeks and the Romans did is they worshipped a human body. Today, we're seeing that, uh, that idolization continue, uh, especially in, in these sexual, uh, this sexual revolution that's happening, that continues to happen with transgenderism with these magazines publishing who is the supposed hottest woman around and on and on and on. And even the same as with uh, men as well, this, this idea that there is the, the quote-unquote sexiest man or the sexiest woman in, in the world. And, and this, but but it, it exemplifies the point that I'm making, that namely that here's, here's the view of the body. The body is in this view is to be worshipped. It is an object not not to be uh, it, it is a, it is an object to be worshipped to be idolized. Now we know that an idol is anything that we place above the Lord, where we find our meaning, our value, and our worth. And there's nothing wrong to clarify. There's nothing wrong with exercising. There's nothing wrong with working out. There's nothing wrong with eating healthily. There's nothing wrong with taking care of the body in which the Lord gave us. But the problem is, is when we cross over the line to caring only about our physical appearance, that is what Peter is addressing. That is what scripture talks about, about idols. We are not, Romans 1, it talks about this. When it, when it gives us what's called as the creator-creature distinction, mainly that God is a creator. We are the creature. We are to worship the, the creator, 
not worship ourselves. We are created beings. We are made to worship God. And as a Westminster Confession in point one, to, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That, that is the truth. That is why we were created. That is our meaning. That is our purpose. That is where we are to find value. But the problem is, is, is in stories like the one from Maxim and the, and the others that we see and the ideas promoted in, in magazines like Maxim and Playboy and on and on and on, on social media, especially Instagram, is this elevation of the body, the human body, to the level of worship. This is why you see this at play in, in, on beaches all over the place in in you know magazine ads on television in in singing in in work in and uh, uh, at concerts is this idea i must dress to you know impress right i must dress a certain way to quote unquote fit in but the bible has something even more than this what unlike the surrounding culture we are not to be vainly concerned with our physical attractiveness we are to develop the permanent inner beauty of a godly character. So that's what we need to get out of this story from, uh, from this story that we considered from Maximum published by Daily Wire. We need to have, as Christians, we need to have an eternal perspective grounded and founded on the unchanging, uncompromising, and unrelenting truth uh, of the reliable, trustworthy, authoritative, and binding and clear word of God that points us to Christ. And because that's true, we need to make clear to people that to worship what is created is sinful. It violates the law of God. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and so we must proclaim the glory of Christ, the treasure of Christ, and the person and work of Christ for the salvation of sinners. And we must call Christians engaging in and participating and supporting uh, the teaching that it goes against what we've talked about today, we must call them to repent and we must call them to stop being apathetic, to stop promoting false ideologies. It is happening in the church where some people, even in the professing church, want to rip out parts of the Bible because they don't like it. It's, it's out there. It's a view out there. And you know what? And so much more. This is why we must speak up. It matters. It matters it matters, yes, that we care for our physical body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we also must care as well about growing and availing of ourselves of the means of grace personally, reading our word, studying our word, meditating on our word, memorizing the word, taking time to apply the word to our life, and corporally hearing the word preached by and being a member of a biblically qualified, where a biblically qualified male pastor is and where there's a plurality of them as well. You know, we need to hear the word from biblically qualified pastors. We need to fellowship with the saints. We need to do life with one another in small groups in our local churches. We need to be taught the word. We need to be fed the word. We need to feed on the word. We need the word. <coughs> we need the word like we need uh, air. We need sleep. We need food. We need water. That's our need for God's word. That's our need for one another. And that ultimately expresses our need for God's word. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Contending for the Word podcast. My name is Dave. I am the ho one of the hosts for this show. I'm also the producer for this show. Until next week, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contending for the Word. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, and follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, or X. We appreciate your support.